Welcome to Create New Futures. Thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. This is Aviv and welcome to this episode of Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with thought leaders and with fascinating people to explore ideas and practices that can help you create new futures for you and for your business. To explore with me how I can help you create a new future for your organization, you can call or email me directly. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Dodds. Mark is the Global Vice President for Solution Sales at Dell EMC. He has a broad range of leadership experiences and has led cross-functional teams in the Americas, Europe and Middle East, and the Asia-Pacific theaters. Mark has 27 years of industry experience with American Express, Microsoft, and Dell EMC. He is a former Special Forces soldier, and he contributed to a number of technology startups. During his time at Microsoft, he held several senior leadership sales and marketing roles worldwide including global leadership of the mid-market public sector business and leadership of the specialist sales and technical organization with focuses on new and emerging products and innovation. Mark has extensive interests outside of corporate life and has participated in many extreme sporting events, including the Eco Challenge, several Ironman triathlons, and the Marathon des Sables, known as the toughest foot race on earth, along 250 kilometers made of six stages over seven days. Mark currently lives in Seattle with his wife and two children. In this conversation, we reflect on one of the largest transformation in the tech industry, on what Satya Nadella, Microsoft CEO, looks for in a leader, and on how you bring very smart people to create super results. I explore with Mark his experiences in elite environments in the army, in extreme sports, and in business. And we also discuss the beliefs and behaviors of enlightened parenting. I initially met Mark on a flight from San Jose to Seattle. Like two other conversations at 36,000 feet, that I describe in Create New Futures, Mark and I found ourselves in an extraordinary conversation. This podcast is an excuse to pick up our conversation. So Mark, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Aviv, thank you very much for the invite. I'm delighted to be here. I'm sure, I'm sure there are uh, some fantastic people that have been through these conversations and uh, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm able to add something of value to, uh, to, the, people that, to the people that consume them. But uh, I'm delighted to be here with you. So how are you, first of all? I know you've just been traveling, you landed, you, you're moving fast. Uh, how are you today? <laughs> where, where have you just uh, been traveling to? You know, I'm going, through, I'm going through what I think is probably the biggest corporate transformation in the history of the industry, the history of the IT industry. Um, Michael Dell uh, purchased EMC 
for EMC Corp for $67 billion. And what that then created was a, a company of 140,000 people with a very broad range of, of technologies and offerings. But what it, also, uh, what it also resulted in was a very, very complex exercise in how you bring two large companies together. And I'm currently living through that. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating set of experiences to see how you bring two cultures together. But what that actually uh, results in is a huge amount of time on airplanes. So I've been really, I've been traveling around the world. I've been to, uh, I've been to Europe. I'm, I'm spending quite a lot of time in Texas. I've never been to Texas. <laughs> um, so I'm spending quite a lot of time in Austin uh, at Dell headquarters. And, and I've been, uh, I've been in Boston and on the East coast as well. But, you know, as, uh, as our conversation highlighted, when we met, uh, we spend a huge amount of time on airplanes and it's usually the, the place where you meet the most interesting people. So indeed, really indeed, in that initial conversation, one of the things you spoke about was your, your passion to, to building new teams. And so you are currently in an exercise like this. Uh, what um, what inspires you and what excites you when when you face a complex challenge like like the one you you are experiencing right now? I think there's something very special about working for big companies, and by that I mean if I qualify that answer, I I think uh, one of the one of the, the great things about working for a large organization is you meet a huge number of very talented people. Uh, there, are, there are rafts of people inside of large corporates that are not talented. Um, but in my view, you meet a huge number of very smart, very innovative, very energized people. And the key to getting these super results are when you bring them together, you give them, you give them the very individualistic mission. Each one has a very important part to play in the, in the jigsaw. And then uh, when you put all of those pieces together, the results can be can be outstanding. But I, I think right now, what excites me is is a couple of things. The first one is, I've always been, different leaders have different styles. And one of the key questions that I will ask any leader in any organization that I meet, whether I'm interviewing them or whether I'm just speaking to them, is for them to give me examples of where they have people that they've recruited, that they've brought into their organizations, and that have been successful. And by that, I mean they've, they've been promoted, they've moved through, they've achieved their career goals. So one of the things that excites me is to see great people achieving career goals. And I don't mean that in the glib sense or you know, the, the corporate or political sense. I'm just talking about the, the realities of what it is to lead people and see them achieve their personal goals. And I think that is something that has been with me from a very young age in the army and then all the way through now to, to corporate life is I, currently I'm looking at the team, I'm looking at the, the talent we have in this new organization and I'm thinking about, and I, I speak to them in a three and a five year window, but what is your three year aspiration? What is your five year aspiration and how do we achieve that? So I'm starting to see some, some real uh, changes in the way that people are thinking about their career aspiration first. And I think I can help them achieve that. And that is, that is part and parcel of being, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great byproduct of, of the role. I think the second thing 
and it's probably if Michael Dell was on this call, he would say, Mark, this is this is the first thing. <laughs> um, the, the, the second thing is that we are building technology. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to change the way we, we think about building solutions and then delivering them to customers to add value in a, in a quicker, more accelerated fashion. And I think that is, is a very interesting challenge for the entire tech industry, because when you look at how much money gets consumed in, in technology, uh, one of the biggest challenges, in my view, is how customers get real value. How do they get value from the spend? How do they get? How do they deliver the outcomes that they're looking for? Um, and I, it's not that is not always clear in the IT industry. And I think um, there are many, many, many examples of where uh, we could cite where people have spent huge amounts of money and, and not got the value that they were looking for. Right. So my second thing is that. Is, is I'm excited by the fact that we're doing something new inside of, inside of the company to build solutions, to build a team that is innovative and entrepreneurial and thinks differently, and then ultimately to build solutions that provide the customers with a quicker route to, a quicker route to the return and the outcomes that they're looking for. Those two things are, are, are great things. Right. Great. Let me rethread through some of the themes you just uh, pointed to because these are very important topics and, and can, we, sh we should be mining for more insights. In the first thing you talked about was how we often find in large companies population that's very bright. There, there is also others, but the challenge that I find is that you can often bring around the table a group of very smart people. And I've often been in these situations and observed a group of very smart people and they seem to more often than not produce collective stupidity because they're quite dysfunctional in the way they choreograph the conversations. That's my area of passion. That's my area of focus because I find that I'm able to help pull those talents together in, in a whole new way. Give me a, your experience and, and your comment on this. Would you corroborate that, that often we, we have very smart people around the table, but it's quite rare to produce a collective wisdom that that's delivers a throughput that's greater than the sum of the individual parts? Yeah. It, you know, you cover um, some of this in Creating New Futures, actually, Aviv, and I, I would recommend that anybody that is listening to this podcast, and that has an interest in building are great decision-making structures in their own businesses. Read the book. And I'm, I'm not saying that because I'm on your podcast. I just, I read the book. I've read many. Um, and uh, I really like the way you deal with some of this. Now, a couple of things spring to mind. The first one is I had the, I had the absolute honor of listening to Mark Kelly recently, who is a former fighter pilot. He's an astronaut. And his wife, uh, was shot in Arizona by, uh, by a gunman, actually. She was a, she was a senator. She was, she was shot. And he, he talked about our collective decision-making and, and how they do that with NASA and then how he applied that to his private life because he had seven doctors in a room all proposing something different in terms of the medical solution to, to her problem. Um, and the way that he approached it was very interesting because what he did was he went to the most junior person first and said, do you, do you believe this is the right thing? Do you believe this is the right solution? And she answered, 
And then he went through to the, all the way through to the senior surgeon and they agreed a solution. And what he said during that, that piece was that you can create collective stupidity and make collective decisions which are clearly poor if you don't have a, a structure inside of your decision-making that allows everybody to have uh, an equal voice. And I, I learned a lot from that speech, and I, I learned a lot from just reading around how NASA arrive at decision-making. And I think that the most important thing that I've come to conclude is outside of having smart people at the table, there is no substitute, absolutely no substitute for any leader who is listening to this or building teams or who is out there day to day. I do not believe there is any substitute for recruiting smart people. That is an absolute, it's a start point, and you have to have people who can think differently. But then I think you have to give everybody an opportunity to be able to express their ideas, express their thoughts, and to challenge senior people um, in, a, in a way which is 100% uh, normal and natural within the culture. And what I found was I, when I went to Microsoft, uh, I, I'd finished, I, I left the army, I went to American Express first, and then I went to Microsoft. And in the meeting rooms, many of the meeting rooms had a sign up that said, if two people are thinking the same thing, one of you shouldn't be here. Um, and it's a, it's a thought that has stayed with me for most of, my, most of my career, which is you have to give people the opportunity within the, within the culture of your teams, your groups, your organizations, and in terms of the, the leadership style that you deploy, you have to, one, be very confident in your own ability, because in order to get to the best solution, people have to challenge you. And I see a huge number of leaders in corporate life who do not like to be challenged. That is very dangerous for both them and the company, in my view. So one, the culture of be an enable challenge within your organization, and that includes you. The best ideas should always win. Secondly, I think giving people a platform and a confidence to speak is an imperative. And that sounds very obvious. It sounds very obvious. But many of the group decisions that are clearly wrong, that are made by senior leaders, are made because the smartest people in the room, who may be the most junior people in the room, don't get the opportunity to speak or don't have the confidence to speak up or oppose an idea presented by somebody more senior. So culturally, if you're going to be successful, culturally, in my view, those two things are key. Pick right. smart people and then give them the platform to speak, regardless of what the hierarchy is within the room or at the meeting. And for smart people and for junior people to speak up, as you said, this must be built into the culture. But also, it needs to be built into the, the, mature, the maturity of the, of the leaders that, that are there and these are the kind of confident, mature, psychologically and emotionally mature leaders that are free of the, the need to always be the smartest person uh, in the room. In fact, they uh, invite and attract strong people around them. And not only that, they foster and promote the, the brilliance such that they become better themselves. Uh, so... I absolutely agree with that. And I, I listened to, uh, I was listening to something from Satya Nadella uh, yesterday. I'm a big fan of Satya Nadella. Having grown up in the Microsoft world where 
I've seen many senior leadership styles from Bill Gates to Steve Ballmer. And then ultimately, you know, now that I'm, I'm outside of Microsoft, I still work with Microsoft from a very, uh, very closely. But um, what I saw with Satya Nadella is, you know, they asked him how he runs meetings. And what he said was, I listen more, I speak less, but then I'm decisive when I need to be decisive. And I think that is a lesson that every senior leader uh, in industry could could take and, and could deploy and would be more, su more successful as a result. Because I think, you know, again, anybody that's listening to this, this will probably resonate. You go to a meeting and you've got a president in the meeting and you've got some SVPs and VPs and, and so on and so on and so on. If you really kind of boil it down, the people that are not as effective as they could be, the senior people, they will spend more time communicating, speaking, and driving ideas in that meeting than anybody else. Um, and what it really, when you, when you analyze, when you synthesize the whole meeting and you look at what's been achieved, what you realize is that you've really taken on board um, many of the ideas of the most senior person. I think Satya Nadella's idea of listen, talk less, listen more, but then be decisive when the time comes. I think that's a, that's a great model for, for any senior leader. His first ever communication after he took uh, the CEO role in Microsoft addressed the idea and the themes of self-organizing type approach, one that allows for the best innovative ideas to come forward. Mm. And I, I do believe that's a very important idea, very important insight. You cannot run a very large enterprise with uh, many tens of thousands of people and create velocity of innovation without creating the environment for people to find each other and to bring forward their best ideas in the context that's emergent inside the, the big overarching corporate agenda. So uh, when I saw this first message, I think just a few days after he took the, the role, it was very clear to me that he was bringing a completely new philosophy to Microsoft. He, he is. And uh, the, the other thing that I picked up in his interview yesterday was they asked him what he looks for in new hires as a senior leader. And, and it resonated with me instantly because what he said was he's looking for people that bring clarity. Uh, he didn't say simplify, but I've, I, I think he meant it, which is he looks for people that can clarify. He looks for people that can simplify and he looks for people that can energize. And I think that uh, those three things are, are absolutely key. But I remember uh, going back some time, and it's a, it's a lesson I picked up, and, I, and it's been with me now for, for 10 or 12 years, was Chris Capicella, who is actually now the CMO at Microsoft, but at that time uh, was doing another role. And what he said was, I, I start each year by thinking about what are my priorities, by getting clarity around what do I want to achieve as an organization and how am I going to do it? And then ultimately, how do I apply my time? So I'm going to apply, you know, 30% of my time to customers. I'm going to spend 30% of my time on innovation. I'm going to, and he went, he went through and really applied, looked at his available time for that year and applied time to different priorities. And this sounds very obvious, but actually when you think about personal productivity and you think about personal effectiveness, what happens is once you're in this maelstrom of corporate life, which is it's email, 
it's, it's telephone calls, it's meetings and so on. It is amazing how quick you can lose sight of what's really important and ultimately what's really important is the customer. So when, they, when you think about any business and you think about the senior leaders and the effectiveness of the senior leaders, in my view, one of the key things is an element, and you, again, you, you've covered it uh, well in, in several chapters in this, which is thinking about what is it you're trying to achieve, thinking about the route that you will take with your organization to, to create the pathway to, uh, to the goals that you have, and then ultimately to be, able to, to be able to measure those goals and create breakthroughs and then move beyond that. I think those are all things that uh, I think every leader needs to explore. But I think the key message that I would, that I would leave you with on this one is there, are, there is, in my mind, no, there is no limit to how much you can learn from other people. And it's, uh, it's incredible to see just how many, I mean, there are many insights in this book, but there are, you know, there are lots of insights that you see on a daily basis, whether it's videos, whether it's interviews, whether it's written pieces that provide you with the sum of the experiences of other people. And if you can, if you can again, if you can disseminate through that and decide which of those things are important to you, how do you deploy them in your style, make them authentic, it has to be real. It has to be you. But once it's you and you're taking those great messages, then it becomes something that, uh, that can lead to, to accelerated results in whichever business you're in. Right. That's a great thing. So <laughs> there are so many good things in what you said there. But let me just highlight a few important points that you articulated, which is that to drive productivity and to drive impact, we must focus not just in terms of how we allocate our resources and, and time in, in large buckets, but really be very clear and clearly articulate the outcomes we are hoping to produce and work back from those outcomes, work back from the future state, such that that becomes the organizing principle of how we do what we do today in what I call Horizon One, and therefore also how we prioritize our Horizon Two themes and, and overarching strategies. That's the first uh, thing you, th you said there. The, the other thing you said is we, we are surrounded by profound learning opportunities, but unless we internalize and make this learning our own, and move the learning forward to implementation, but in an authentic and congruent way. That is, we find the way to express our voice, our unique competence, our unique approach inside the, the offering or the, the unique benefit of that new nugget of wisdom and, and knowledge. Unless we do that, there is breakdown in the congruency of the learning process because it's either not implemented or it's implemented from the outside to the outside rather than having been internalized in a profound and meaningful way in terms of who you are and, and what you bring to your leadership uh, role and in terms of your vision. So two very important concepts that, that you offered there in, in this story. I, I love the way you summarized that. I mean, there is a, I mean, you, you know this because you've, you've had some of these experiences, but there, there is a very good reason why the, the military train people in the way that they do. And that is 
they understand how to maintain uh, how to maintain their job, how to not maintain their job because that's clumsily stated. They 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 learn how to uh, how to execute their job under the most extreme pressure. And the way that the armed services do that is to give you one, give you confidence in what you're doing, which means you have a very high skill level. But two, they give you a very, very clear structure on who does what and, and ultimately how those pieces fit together to achieve goals. And regardless of what is happening around you, at any given time, a military unit will continue to function at a very high level despite pressures and, and other things. Now, that in corporate life, I think, is the key because you do have, as a leader, well, actually, I say leader, but it really, the reality is everybody in corporate life, from somebody coming in as a graduate all the way through to a president or a CEO, everybody has on a daily, on a daily basis a huge number of distractions. And dealing with those distractions while you remain focused on the, the more important goals, while you remain focused on the team functioning as a group effectively and making sure that each person in the group is performing in the way that they need to. Um, that, to me, is, is the, the secret source of senior leadership. So, so, Mark, so, Mark, share a little more about your Army experience, but specifically how it shaped you and how it shaped in, in many ways your, your corporate career and, and your professional career because of that early Army experience. Well, I, I, I was lucky because I, I, served with, uh, I served with a unit in the British Army that was, uh, that was very different and, you know, in many ways um, has a very extreme selection process and then ultimately um, has a very, on the surface, very informal um, leadership structure and, and organization. Um, there is lots of examples of where... Uh, the, the soldiers coming into the unit are calling senior officers by their first name and so on. And this is a very unique thing. And I think the first thing I learned there was that you, you create something very special when you have a very, uh, very severe barrier to entry. And that is the same in any organization, uh, whether it's corporate, military, whatever the case may be. When you create a barrier to entry that pretty much ensures that everybody that has been through the selection process first has been through a common selection process, which means that when you're standing next to people, you have 100% confidence in those people. So that was my first lesson from the military, which was make the selection process very meaningful. And if I could extend that into what I found in corporate life, which was Mark Andreessen once said when he was talking about Netscape, he said, you know, we started, to, we started to decline as an organization when we hired our first bad employee. Hmm. And it's a, it's, it was a great way of thinking because they had a very extreme way of, of, um, of, of interviewing people and so on. If I think about, I live in Seattle and uh, Amazon are now going through extreme growth. And one of the things that you see there is they're, they're, they're hiring very large numbers of people, but they have a very stringent, consistent uh, interview process and selection process that means that they're trying to maintain the very highest of standards in terms of bringing people in. So the first thing is I learned that a selection process that is consistent, 
that is extremely difficult and arduous will help you in the long run because, and it sounds very obvious, but it's not because most people, most corporates that I've worked with will take quite often will take expediency over quality. And that means that they're under pressure to fill gaps. They will take somebody that's 70% right. And as a result of that, they degrade the performance of their teams. So my, my first message is wait, um, find the, get the right person. I think the second thing uh, that I learned from the military that has stuck with me is selfless commitment. Mm. One of the hardest things that I think, it, I, I think it is the hardest thing to replicate in corporate life. If you look at a military unit of any description, um, actually police, fire, uh, first responders, or mostly, you know, if you look at all of those organizations, they're the same. And that is there is a selfless commitment to your teammates. And it is an amazing thing to see it work, to see it work perfectly, which is to see people quite often who don't know each other uh, risk their lives for each other. I think that's, that's an amazing thing. Now, if you were to extrapolate that back into corporate life and say, if you could create an environment where there was selfless commitment to each other, where you stop thinking about, hey, what's my career goal? What, is, what am I trying to achieve? What's in it for me? And you stopped thinking that way and started thinking around the collective power of the organization, the collective power of the team. If the team does well, everybody does well. If there is a selection process that is difficult, then everybody in that team is an accepted member. Everybody has arrived at, the, at that point in the, from the same route through. Once you have that confidence in each other, and then you have a culture of we, we have we have selfless commitment to each other. I will make you successful. I wonder how many people listening to this podcast will say, actually, in the organizations that I work with, quite often there is an active, uh, there is an active desire to make other people unsuccessful. And you, if you're listening to this, you, you may smile at that notion because I've seen that many, many times in corporate life. But if you can, if you can create cultures that are 100% supportive, the teams are supportive of each other, you will be wildly successful. I what's, think it's a very difficult thing to do. What's curious in, in the way you framed and the context that you, you gave to, to this from your army experience, it's very difficult to transfer to somebody that did not have that kind of a peak experience like, like you have had in an elite unit in the army. But perhaps what more people can access is the idea of a team sport. That may be for people that, that did not go through the, the kind of formative experience that you've had in, in your training in the British Army, uh, a way to access it. Because a team sport has this very same premise, which is you, you win together or you lose together. And sometimes passing the ball is, is a bigger achievement than actually scoring. Yeah. And uh, so indeed, that is a, a big message it's, it's I, you know, I mean, they, you, that was a, that's a great analogy because sport is something that people connect to both when they're playing it and also when they, when they watch it. Um, but one of the things that, that I've come to realize is that at a strategic level, that the dynamics that drive an organization are quite often things that are uh, very, very simple in nature. And, and compensation is a, is a very simple uh, a very simple lever that you can use to to create uh, to create organizational models that work effectively, and it's also a 
the lever that can destroy um, teamwork and so on in a large organization. But I do remember inside of Microsoft, one of the, the, the genius, I, I think one of the pieces of genius that I saw in Microsoft in the early days was the maniacal work ethic that the company created around the notion of a share price that was growing and everybody in that company having a vested interest. And I think, again, I, you know, I'm, I don't work for Amazon, but I, but I, I know people that do and I, I've read about them and I've, I looked at their leadership principles and so on. And it's a very interesting concept because what they're doing there is to say, everybody has a vested interest. Everybody will have shares in the company. We will not pay sales commission. So what that means is that you bring people together. You create this environment where people want to work together to achieve goals based on the fact that when you do achieve those collective goals, the value of the company increases, the share price increases, and, and your, your value, the value that you have in hand increases. So there are some very, very simple things that I think you can do as an organization that will, in part, drive some of the some of the qualities that I've just described there from a from a military perspective. And I think we would all accept that there are there are just situations in the military um, that require teamwork that you will never, thankfully, you will never replicate as a normal person in uh, in everyday life. And I think that's a great thing. But well, just some of those lessons is a you know is something that I think can help large corporates. And I agree with you that compensation and incentive structure is an important lever clearly not the only lever. In, in the case of, of Amazon that you point to, there is a whole culture and, and climate and focus and, and organizational clarity that, for example, is not oriented to the next quarterly earning, but rather to the long-term goal and an idea of, of what Amazon is about. And, and that coherence of vision is, is largely what drives the discipline that uh, we experience at, at both at, at the customer and, and perhaps also internally people that work for, for Amazon. Yeah, and I, you know, I see the reverse as well. So I, you know, having been around large sales organizations for a long period of time, one of the things um, that, I've, that I've noted is that you can, you can destroy teamwork, that you can, right. you can have a very negative effect on the performance of the organization. By, by doing two things. One is to give sales and sales leaders a more prominent role in the company than they should have. Um, sales is a lever of execution in any organization. It's an important lever of execution, but it should not be uh, at the absolute center of your decision-making as a large organization. I think the second thing is when you do deploy compensation models that are, that are not tuned to achieving the overall goals of the company. What then happens is that people, people stop focusing on areas that could make the company successful and start focusing only on the areas that they get paid for. Now, this is a very tactical, we're now into a very tactical discussion, but at the, at, at the 10,000 feet level, the way that you compensate, the way that you drive, the way that you incent, the way that you develop individuals is strategic. Right. But Further down, as you get down into running water at 10 feet, you know, what you see running water through the pipes at 10 feet, what you see is if I get this model wrong, then I'm not going to have the right level of teamwork. I'm not going to have the right level of collaboration right across the organization. I'm not going to have good experiences 
for customers. Customers, ex customers engaging your organization might be having a very negative experience because different parts of the organization are, diff are compensated in different ways. And I say all of this because, again, it's for any leader that is listening to this, this podcast who has read this book, who is thinking about how do I develop an organization that is, is extreme in performance, that has great people that I'm trying to get the best out of, that, I, that has a selfless commitment to one, the overall goals of the organization, the company, but two, has commitment to each other. Compensation is, is, is a big lever in driving some of that. And you know, if you can get that right, then uh, in my view, you'll be successful. Indeed, indeed. Mark, let me retrace from uh, to an earlier stage in, in your career one more time, because I'm, I'm curious, how did you get from the army to the, the first leadership role and what led you to it? And also, how did you then discover your passion for innovation and technology? And, and the reason I'm asking is because I'm always very interested in the honing and discovery process that enables a person to, to discover the sweet spot. That is the, the convergence zone of your passion and your talent and core competence inside a specific modus operandi or way of doing business, a way of bringing and expressing your talent and, and passion. So share with me that journey of discovery for yourself. And at what point were you able to perhaps say to yourself something like, I'm in the right place. I found what I'm meant to be doing. This is the trajectory I'm going to take, and it will lead me to next and new opportunities. I, I think the start point, Aviv, is that you, you, you have to decide whether you're going to be a career soldier or whether you're going to do, or if that's just going to be a, a building block in your, your set of experiences through life. I decided that uh, I was going to do it for six years and I was going to do something else. Now, when I left, um, I started to think about, actually, it was a, it was the start point was a very random reactionary thing because I was just looking for a role. Now, interestingly, I joined, I joined American Express. And uh, what the guy who was interviewing me said was, well, you know, we, we want you to, uh, we want you to go and sell, um, we, I was selling card acceptance. So I was selling uh, at, the, at the time we were, it was the service establishment group uh, within, within American Express. And that was really selling to large companies and to actually all companies of all sizes. It was selling acceptance of the American Express card. And, the, and their big challenge at the time was their rates were higher, their, um, their, their, their cycle of payment was slower than the other card providers. So it, you know, the, the acceptance was, uh, the acceptance was slow. So what happened to me was I started as a, I started as a, as a sales rep and somebody said to me, wow, you're, you're very organized at this. Would you like to run a small team? I think it was the biggest culture shock I'd had because I'd led people in the, in the army. And it was, I think it's, it, it was an interesting thing in the sense that everybody you're leading is very committed. So <laughs> you're, uh, you're dealing with the most positive, the most committed, the, you know, very, very fit people, elite people who want to be in an elite environment and leading people like that is an absolute joy. Um, but at the same time, I said yes to, yes to my first line manager role. And what I discovered was there was actually very little difference between leading 
what people expect in corporate life and what people expected, you know, in military life, which is they want clarity. Uh, they want you to be visible. They want energy. They, they want you to be supportive. They want you to understand their issues and understand their job. Um, quite often, I think leaders lose sight of the roles inside of their organization. They, they lose sight of what some of their people actually do. Um, and all of those things came very naturally to me. So over a period of time, uh, actually six or seven months, somebody said to me, well, would you like to run a bigger team? And it was that easy. It was this, um, it, it was the, if you like, you, you talked about convergence of passion. I love that term because I had a passion in leading people, but I, as I was going through and I was acquiring bigger teams in American Express, it was, it was interesting because what I discovered was that the challenges that I faced in the early days of finding my feet in corporate life, understanding the different operating models and what motivates people ultimately um, is different to what I had come from. Um, I don't think those lessons are different to, to the ones that I have today, which is, or the, the challenges that I have today, which is I've just taken over a new group as a vice president. You know, what is my start point? My, my start point is understand our mission, get clarity around what we're trying to achieve. Which people do I have in the organization? Do we have passion for what we're doing? So I, I learned very early that uh, you've, got to, you've got to love what you do. And I, again, I don't mean that in the glib sense. I think you've really got to love what you do, otherwise you won't be very good at it. And uh, you know, leading people is is something that you have to be passionate about. I see, I, I see a lot of leaders in corporate life who have fallen into leadership. They're effectively managing rather than leading because they're not inspiring anybody. They're not helping anybody. They're not interested in driving the the success of others. They're, that kind of manager is the most corrosive. I think it's the most corrosive and damaging. Uh, element to any large corporate. So that was the first thing is, is just starting with, starting with small teams and realizing that uh, the experiences that you've got are really the same set of experiences as a leader that you're, that you're really going to need in corporate life. I think going into Microsoft was very interesting. Well, let, 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 me just, let me just hold you there and, and decode this story. So the, the, to decode this story, it's about clarity. It's about bringing a sense of clarity to vision and it's about being visible. And very importantly, what you said, your number three was energy. It's about showing up with energy and enthusiasm and converting and translating that energy to support and, and encouragement and facilitation for your team. And ultimately, uh, loving what you do and also are falling in love, so to speak, with not just with succeeding yourself, but with, with enabling the success of others. And this, to me, is just such an important point you're making. And, and this is where you started at the beginning of this conversation, because what you said was, when I look at the people working for me today, not only do I want us to achieve a mission, an organizational mission, I want to create a story where people can identify and see a direct line of sight from their own contribution and their own ability to succeed to the organizational success. That is what organizational alignment truly means, that, that we see the individual success, not only as contributing, but as completely in line with the organizational success, a lot easier to say than, than, and describe 
than to actually catalyze in a broad, large organization. But, but very important points, so I didn't want to, to lose and, and these and wanted to make sure we recapture them and, and codify them as part of your really formative experience earlier on in, in American Express. The other beauty that, that I find in, in this story, which again is for me so interesting, this is not you sitting at home and saying, well, I think this is what I should be doing. It's more the case of one opportunity present, is presented to you and you embrace that opportunity fully and that leads to the next opportunity and so on. And, and this is why I, I wrote a, a chunk of the Creating Futures is about the, the window of opportunity and how you respond and embrace these opportunities when they show up. Because at that point in time, there is only that window. But when you embrace that window, so many other window, windows of opportunity will open to you uh, further. So, so please pick up the story I, of how I, that led you to Microsoft. I, I, I love that chapter, Avi, by the way, I, because I think it's, um, I think it's one, it's, it's, having the, it's having the ability to recognize that you have an opportunity. And quite often, the, the smallest things can be opportunities, a, a chance conversation, a, you know, a new role at work or a new task at work, which leads to a different set of relationships. I think all of those things you know, are opportunities. They don't, they don't necessarily appear as an opportunity when you first encounter them. And uh, one of the tricks is, I think, to be able to recognize an opportunity. But um, I think the other thing that, that you touched on in, in the book also is it, this is a sustained effort. It's not, I mean, the professional sport talk about consistency. They talk about the ability to come if you're a, an NHL hockey player or you're a soccer player playing in the Premier League or you're, a, you're an NBA star, the ability to come every, every week, every night and play at the absolute highest level to the maximum that, that you as a performer can deliver, that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And it's something that you, I think I've found that to be common in high achievers at, in corporate life also, which is you really need to have the ability to, to perform at your maximum for a long period of time. If you do not do that, then you know, ultimately those opportunities that present themselves will, uh, will dissipate over, uh, over a period of time also. It's, so at what point? That's, that's an important point is do not, you know, do, do not think that because you get one opportunity and you do well, that will then lead to the same sustained success because I think it doesn't. I think it's, it requires you to have energy, have passion, and to be, to be present over a long period of time. That's what leads to ultimate personal success. To, to be present is a very important comment. To be present inside the, the zone of performance and to be present in your best and build an organization around it such that you not only have the, the muscle memory, but the entire system of support that enable you to perform at, at that level, which brings me to this other question before perhaps you, you thread back to, to Microsoft and what led to, to next corporate uh, experiences, which is at what point did you engage in extreme sport? What, what's the, because that's a parallel journey 
alongside your uh, professional career and you have been involved in some very extreme uh, adventurous uh, sport activities. So tell me a little bit about that. From a very young age, I, I was involved. My father was a great sportsman and uh, our family was a very sporty family. So from a very young age, uh, I was involved in, in very serious sports. So we, I, I remember going to a, a school in South Africa. I was brought up in South Africa and uh, we said, actually, I, this memory is fresh because I was just talking to one of the guys on Facebook yesterday. But we, we set a record um, for boys under 14 fours in rowing. We set a record, a national record that stood for 20 years. And the, the, the thing with that was it was my first, I think it was my first, probably my first experience in an elite environment where there was a very, very high level of expectation around everybody in that environment, not just the people that were rowing and the people that were in the boat, but the people that trained you, the, you know, the people that fed you and so on. It was, it was a very interesting environment, but I, it was also extreme. And I, I just got from that point on, I think I got more and more into the mindset of doing extreme things physically. Um, it led to certainly uh, in the army, I did several and many of those types of things. But since, since coming into corporate life, I'm very interested in two things. I'm very interested in the challenge of taking yourself beyond where you believe you can go. And I think races like the Marathon de Sable and the Eco Challenge and those types of races, the Red Gouloir, um, to a certain extent, um, Ironman triathlons, I think those things do take you over the edge, do take you over the limit. And they also take you to extreme places. So they take you to extreme parts of the world to do these events, um, which are very beautiful. And I think the journey is amazing. I think the second thing around extreme sport is you meet people of like mind. And that to me is one of the most energizing uh, things that I get out of all of that is to, is to be, be with people that believe there are no limits, believe that you can achieve whatever you want to achieve as long as you train hard, as long as you have a plan, as long as you're focused, and as long as you're committed. And if you've got those four things, then and it's probably the same you know, in anything that you do, if you have those four things, you could achieve things that you do not believe that you can achieve as, as a, at a start point. And more, more likely, most people that know you do not, do not believe you can achieve them either. And I think that has drawn me into extreme sport. But to, be, to take yourself to the very, very edge of what is possible, to face uh, extreme hardship and then overcome that hardship through mental strength, through the ability to keep going when most people would stop, um, those things are incredibly rewarding. And they're, they're just things that uh, are intrinsic to my, to my personality. So I, said, I suppose it's, uh, it's classed as enjoyment, although most people don't believe that. Very, very formative experiences you're describing there. And, and I make a point in Create New Futures about the importance of peak experiences. And what you're describing at, at an early age, being involved in an elite sport and producing an important record, but the entire experience created something in your psyche and in your topography of meaning that you then, as you proceed in life, you want to continue to emulate and recreate in the first place and then even raise the bar every time again. That's this idea of you pushing yourself to the edge and discovering now I can actually raise the bar 
even more. Now, that doesn't have to only be in the context of physical pain of an extreme sport activity, even though that's a great testing ground to fashion and develop the character and, and the topography of beliefs that will allow you to perform in, in other spaces. But there are other expressions to that very same thing because you then later in life found yourself in a variety of situations where you needed to take a, an underperforming situation and, and somehow bring it to hyper growth scenario. And I imagine that there is some similarity between those experiences. You know, there is. And I, I think that you've touched on something interesting there as well. I think the, I think the record is not important. I, mean, I think it's a byproduct of all the other things that happened in the buildup to those races um, around how, how elite teams function. And if, when I think about the turnarounds and particularly uh, one in Microsoft, it was, it was actually the biggest at that time, it was the biggest um, specialist sales or category sales organization in the world had been underperforming for three or four years. Um, and I was asked to, to go and lead it. And what I found when I went there was not that people didn't, didn't necessarily want to do well, but they had lost, they had lost confidence in both themselves and, and the team because the leaders were not that the leaders were not doing the things that we've talked about in this, in this conversation, which was the leaders at that time, they were not, uh, they were not present. They were not energized. They didn't have, uh, they didn't have belief that they could achieve what the corporation was asking them to achieve. And I think as soon as you arrive at the point where your teams are being led by people who do not, are not committed and do not believe they can achieve what you want them to achieve, then I think you have to change the people. I, I saw a very interesting thing recently about Navy SEALs. It was actually a, a, a thing that happened during a selection process that the SEALs were doing. And they had five or six boats, Gemini boats, and the guys raced the boats. So they climb in the boats, they, they paddle the boats out across um, across the, the breakwater and then they have to paddle back. And every one of those things is a race. And what happened was there was one crew that was winning consistently and there was one crew that was coming last. So what the instructors did was very interesting. They said, okay, what we will do is we will change the two leaders over. We will put the guy who is winning, we will put him in the back boat and we will put the guy who is at the back in the front to see if it's actually the crew. Is it just that we've just got the balance wrong and the crew at the front is a stronger crew? Within two races, the crew that had been consistently winning was coming last and the crew that was coming consistently coming last was winning. And what the message was was pretty simple, which is there are no bad teams. There are, there are bad leaders, but there are no bad teams. And what I discovered in the turnaround was similar, is once you've, once you've figured out that you, you have the right leaders in place. They have energy, they have drive, they have intelligence because you have to have leaders that can make great decisions most of the time. They have to be humbled. You have to be able to have a conversation with anybody and, and accept that their idea is better than yours. Um, and then to be able to adopt that with passion, that is something that requires humility. And, and it, I, I think humility is often a taught skill. Um, but once you have those leaders, then all of the other things that, that become strategic in the organization, and I think you know, Jack Welch talks about execution being strategic, and I think he's right. 
Um, but you know, do we have the right products? Do we have the right engagement with the rest of the the rest of the company? Have we got the right the right business the building blocks in place to go and be successful? I think once once you have the right leaders, most of those things, the clarity that you need in the different components of turning an organization around um, emerge very, very quickly. Right, right. And, and human capital, it comes down to almost every time I, I get into a conversation of this type, I think about the importance of human capital. How many CEOs do you see that say in their company, uh, in their company, their, their annual letter or their, their announcements to the street or whatever they do, you, you watch company leaders say our people are our most important resource. But then quite often they have, a private, they have private bathrooms, they have private dining rooms, they have an office at the top of a building, and they actually never meet that people. So to me, the most effective leaders are the ones that are engaged at every level of their organization, who know their people, who, who understand the culture, and who understand how to get the best out of those people to achieve very extreme goal, and, and I've led that over a period of time. Very well said, and again, decoding the, the reverse engineering that you offered about this turnaround situation at, at Microsoft, and with the, with the story of the SEALs, the Navy SEALs, it is about imparting confidence and about giving clear direction together, co-created, co-owned direction, and about giving the team the, the tools with which to create success, and then it's about getting out of the way so people can uh, engage and release their energy and their passion and their commitment at full without you standing in their way, but rather supporting and enabling their success. And, and coaching. I, I think great leaders are great coaches. And, and that's something, again, I think it's something that runs through. You, you've touched on it in the book also, but it, I think there is this need, this absolute absolute to be a, from a manager's perspective from a senior manager's perspective from a senior leader's perspective the ability to coach with confidence and for the people to be willing to take that coaching and to and to do something positive with it and i think the great leaders anybody that is listening to this conversation if i, I would challenge you to just think about the great leaders the great managers that you've had in corporate life and your experiences whether it's whether it's commercial, whether it's in the military, whatever the case may be. If you think about the great leaders that, you, that you've come across, I think one of, the, one of the fundamental qualities that they have is that they are great coaches. They are willing to coach at all times. They are willing to provide people with time and access. And the things that they have to say are generally of high value. And uh, I think that's a critical component of being a great leader. Such an important point. Uh, great leaders do take a personal interest in the, the coaching and the development of, of their people in a deep and, and profound way, which leads me to this, perhaps uh, one of the last themes to explore, but I, I didn't want to lose that thread that appeared when we, we were flying together from San Jose to, to Seattle, because you also spoke then about your your vision for enlightened parenting and the kind of parent that, that you want to be. Tell me, share with me, if, if you if are uh, willing, the deepest beliefs you have that, that, strive, that, that you strive to uh, live up to 
and demonstrate as a parent? You know, that's a, it's actually in, in many ways, that's a very complex, uh, a very complex question of even you've caught me out with that because I was not, I was, I was not expecting you to talk about parenting. Um, but I, I grew up in an environment where two things were happening on a very regular basis. One was I grew up with parents that did not believe that children should be seen but not heard. So from a very, very young age, my brother and myself were encouraged to debate, to discuss, to challenge. Um, and I, I think it, it really positioned us well in life because I think school and education is, is something that is central to your development. But at the same time, a lot, of the learn, a lot of the learnings that you pick up at home, your basic values, your, your ability to decipher right from wrong, your ability to deal with adversity and setback. This is, you know, setbacks is something that every human being will experience in their life. Um, you're really lucky if you don't, but I don't think there's any human that, that won't at some point suffer a setback. You know, we, we, were, we were encouraged to debate and to challenge. And then I think we had a set of values in the house that were related to perseverance, and honesty and respect for others that really were uh, central to the way that I developed as an adult also. And I think those things are things that I've just um, blatantly plagiarized from my parents and tried to, deliver, uh, tried to deliver to my own children. I think the second thing is, is that you really need to think about how you broaden the horizons of a child. And by that, I mean, how do you develop a personality in a child where challenge and big goals, difficult goals, things, aspirational goals are things that you talk about quite naturally? And that to me is, is a very important part of how you develop emerging leaders in children. How do you develop uh, a personality in a child that is about confidence based on values, but is about confidence? is about achievement, and crucially, is about perseverance, is about the ability to keep going when you know, you're not necessarily getting the results that you, that you anticipated or that you want, where things are happening around you that are creating difficulty, that are you know, potentially preventing you from achieving your goal. I think that, 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 that characteristic of perseverance and how you deliver that with children and ultimately then how you build that into their personality in order for them to emerge as leaders, I think is crucial. I think there's a couple of other things too. And this is something that we focus on very, very heavily uh, in the house, which is open mind. It's very difficult in the US to, to, be, um, to be impartial because when you look at the way that the news is delivered in this country, what you see is there's, you know, there's big news services like a, I suppose like a CNN or a Fox or so on. And they have very clear political bias in the way that they report. But I think if you really truly want to produce children that are going to be adaptable, uh, fit into this planet very, very comfortably, they have to be open-minded. They, they have to be able to adapt to change and differences around them um, in a way which is very natural. And I think travel does that. So I think taking them and and taking them to different parts of the world and giving them the opportunity to see different things is important. I think uh, socioeconomic levels 
is something that they have to experience. I think they have to do things, um, whether it's volunteering, whether it's, whether it's making friends with people that aren't necessarily in the same, um, the same groups as them at school or, at, uh, or where, they, where they live. It's going to foreign countries and truly seeing, um, you know, third world countries where poverty is something that goes way beyond anything that we could experience in the United States or in the Western world. I think those set of experiences are really important. But what I'm trying to do um, as a parent is I'm trying to, to produce children that are incredibly well-rounded in terms of very strong values, the ability to accept differences and, and, and different opinions with others, the ability to persevere. I think the ability to, to recognize what they want to achieve early and then to persevere in the route to that goal is, is something that will, will essentially uh, put them in very good stead for the rest of their lives. That's, that's, that's essentially my, my two-minute two no, parenting, but I, that's, that's what I'm living. That's what I try and do. And what I've seen with my children is they're now achieving some, some very notable results. My son just got selected for the high school All-American uh, under 18 rugby team. And, um, you know, one of the things I, I noted with him, we were talking about it, he was excited about the selection, but we talked about how it happened, not, not why it happened. And the, the how is he has spent his life from five years old um, focused on a sport, focused on the mechanics of the sport and the skills within that sport and the, the I suppose, creating and, and establishing the DNA of that sport in his personality. And that has led to much further down the road has led to an achieve a, a very notable goal um, being achieved. And I think that's that in my mind, that's the embodiment of what I'm trying to do is give them a great platform to develop as leaders, but always be focused on, on achieving something. Um, and, you know, I, I think we live that life day to day in our house. <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful story, Mark, and, and a powerful uh, parenting uh, credo there in terms of promoting and encouraging confidence and perseverance and achievement and the formation of character and encouraging the kind of competence that allows them to travel the world with open mind and engage and experience life fully. So a uh, beautiful uh, credo there. This has been a stimulatingly rich exploration because of the, the weave of your experience and the weave of your intellect across these different realms of experience. So as, as we bring this to landing, what parting wisdom do you want to offer to perhaps people seeking to formulate their next career steps and seeking to create for themselves their new future? I think, I think it's twofold, Aviv. I, I think the first one is always be learning. People say to me, what's the best piece of advice you've ever had? I think the best piece of advice I've had is always be learning, which is you have to be a student of the game. You have to be somebody who is truly interested in what you're doing. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you have to be reading. You have to be, you have to be engaging in conversation. You have to be always trying to, to extend your skill set, your ability, your, uh, your, your ambition in a way which makes you better at what you do. And that you could be anything from a gardener all the way through to the president of the United States. I think 
you, you have to be always be learning, and that means you're always improving. If you're always improving, you will, you, you'll be successful. I think the second thing is, is something that I don't think most people do well, and that is, the second thing is asking tough questions about yourself. And what I mean by that is, there are many people that I meet that go through work who never truly know what people believe, what people think of them, what people think of their performance, how people assess their performance, and ultimately how they move forward in, in, in the context of, of career progression inside of a corporate. How do they move, how do they move linearly? How do they move forward? Always be asking the tough questions with confidence. And by that, I mean ask people, senior people how you are doing, what you are doing. Is it effective? How could you be better? Because I think when you ask those questions, many people view that as weakness. I view it as strength. I want somebody to come to me and say, how am I doing? What could I do better? What's the gap between the great performers in this organization and where I am today? What's the gap? What are they doing differently that I could do that would take me forward? I think those two things, if you can do those two things well, and you can do them um, on a consistent uh, basis, then I think you're going to be successful because uh, so many other things fall in behind that. If you understand how you're perceived and how you're performing and what the performance gap is between you and somebody that's outstanding and what they're doing, then it then leads to a different set of discussions around your development, a different set of actions around how you, uh, how you enable yourself. It leads to a different set of, of considerations in the way that you treat your teammates, how you treat your family, how you, how you seek out books like Create New Futures. There's an example of where you can take a book and get the collective benefit of hundreds of conversations, probably thousands, and, and, and assimilate some of that information. That to me, if you can do those two things, if I could give you one piece of advice, which was twofold, it would be those two things. That's, that's beautiful, and, and, that's beautiful and, and powerful, Mark. And, and the biggest thing I take from our exploration today is the spirit of daring. You bring a, spirit, a daring spirit to, to what you do and to your experiences. And, and in just in what you said there, there is the daring to start a new conversation and the recognition that you are always at the threshold of a conversation that potentially could change your life or at least bring to you completely new learning. And then the daring to ask tough questions, not to just purely challenge for challenge sake, even though that's okay too, but because of intense curiosity and the passion to learn to make things better and to find how you can make an even greater contribution. So I, I thank you so much for sharing these insights and experiences with me on this uh, journey today. Aviv, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I, I, I loved our conversation on the plane. I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation also. I, I think there is immense insight in the, uh, in the book and I would encourage anybody to read that. Um, I, you said something interesting there it, it, about challenge. I think, you know, to me, challenge with positivity is the key. Is there are so many people that challenge in a negative way. If you challenge with positivity, in my view, it's amazing what happens when people are faced with positivity. They, the energy 
comes out of a situation and you and you make progress. So uh, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey safely, and it's your time to take action. Here then are a few steps you can take this week. First, to build elite teams, make the selection process meaningful, resist expediency, wait to find the right fit. Mediocre hire is the fastest way to slow and even to derail your organization. Be disciplined and uncompromising when it comes to building your team. Second, embrace both focused and broad range learning. The targeted laser focused learning enables you to progress with critical skills and tasks. The broad range emergent learning enables you to make new connections. There is no limit to how much you can learn from other people. Ask new questions, ask tough questions. And third, to lead is to clarify, to simplify and to energize. Clarifying and simplifying the complex requires focus and work. Embrace the opportunities to bring forward leadership clarity. Build your energy, your physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual energies. Effective and transformative leadership requires all of this. One more thing, you can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how I can help you and your team create a new future. See you next time.